The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. John chapter 21, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses this morning. Let's go ahead and just take a quick read through. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he, was re- and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. This morning as I was going over the message, it was probably about 5.45, I guess, and I started getting texts, and lo and behold, it was from Dick. Uh, Those of you who are visiting, uh, our elder Dick is uh, over in the Holy Land right now, and he said, Brother Craig, I could hear it in the text. He said, you're in chapter 21 this morning, and we're right there on the same spot in the sea. And so he texts me pictures of the sea. And I thought, how cool is that? Here I am going over the message, and I get a visual of what's going on. The picture I was looking for, though, was Dick girding himself and throwing himself into the sea like Peter did. (laughs) But I didn't get that one. I didn't get that one. So uh, I'll be asking him about that when we get back. But, But it was a great reminder, you know, going through that. They're about seven hours ahead of us, so, you know, it was about 1245 when he said it. But... uh, But it was really great. But you know, as we get into chapter 21, the key to understanding this chapter is to see it as a parallel to the first part of chapter 1. Chapter 1, or John 1, 1 through 14, is a prologue in which the pre-incarnate activity of our Lord is summarized. These verses here in chapter 21, verses 1 through 25, are an epilogue. And the emphasis is upon his post-incarnate ministry. So the Lord... Which is, now, which is now rules his church and is now setting how he wants the church to run and to, and to deal with his members and the Christian growth, he begins to lay it out in this little, simple experience with the disciples. He, it's a symbolic uh, experience. It is a history experience. But in the symbolicness of it, it is laying out the groundwork for the church. So the one first thing I want you to see here is that Christ's own stay together. 
all of Jesus' followers had been scattered back to the original lives after the crucifixion. As Isaiah said, the shepherd has been smitten and the sheep are scattered. Yet we find the disciples, for the most part, back in Galilee, where everyone knew them and knew that they had gone off to follow Jesus. They are not scattered, but they are held together as if they were still a special company with a very unique bond. What can account for this? Alexander McLaren makes this statement, quote, There is only one explanation. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That drew them together once more. You cannot build a church on a dead Christ. And of all the proofs of the resurrection, I take it that there is none that is harder for the unbeliever to account for in harmony with his hypothesis than the simple fact that Christ's disciples held together after he was dead and presented a united front to the world, end of quote. It's not only significant that they were together, it is also important to note who were gathered here. We just read the scripture said, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. So seven in all were together here. I think it's significant that the names of Peter and Thomas appear in the first two positions. We just read a few verses earlier that Thomas was the great denier, or excuse me, the great, uh, the, the one who did not believe, had no faith, couldn't trust. Yet in a few verses from here, we're going to see Peter recommissioned, Jesus going after Peter. And can we possibly miss the reality that the church is made up of doubters and deniers. The church is made up of all kinds of sinners. It's made up of liars, cheaters, fornicators that God has wonderfully and beautifully saved through his blood. That's who makes up the church, not super saints. And and if you have accepted Christ's finished work on Calvary as payment for your sins, then you have a commission. You are part of a family whose life has, has, life's work is, as obedient servants is what God has called us to. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background, where you've come from. It's not your background that counts. It's what Christ has made you through his shed blood. And this is what the, the imagery that we see in this ragged bunch of individuals who had so many struggles as they walked with Christ. But Thomas the doubter, Peter the denier, are going to become powerful men for Christ. It is interesting that the disciples here mentioned in chapter 21 were also together in chapter 1. If John is making this parallel showing that the, that the five of chapter 1 are still together here. It's a testimony of the wonderful work of Christ in the hearts of men that draw them together. Those whom he calls to follow Christ are, are not lost. So we must ask ourselves, are we following Christ? If the reality of Scripture is that those that God calls to follow him will never fall away, Are we following Christ? Is he at the very center of your walk? Is he who you wake up to in the morning and who you go to sleep with at night? Is he the very foundation of your thoughts and your decisions and your relationships and all the things you do during the day? 
Well, the next thing I want you to notice is that we cannot move without his direction. The second major point of these verses is the one that we really need to pay very close attention to. It's the sad possibility of attempting to serve Christ in the energy of the flesh and consequently accomplishing nothing. There are all so many things, I've mentioned this to you before, so many ways that people build churches. In fact, I get emails almost every day that if I will implement these certain things, you too will be 10,000 people. But I never find anything talking about surrendering to the leading of the Spirit and being what the Spirit wants you to be. And as I've told you before, I'd rather be a church of a couple of hundred and walking with Christ than 10,000 going nowhere. He must be at the center of everything. And so Peter, being the impatient person as he was, the Lord told them to go to Galilee and wait for him. But Peter decided to go fishing. And that in itself is, is not a bad thing. He wanted to go fishing. They all said, yeah, let's go, because they all pretty much followed Peter every time he had a good idea. And so they go out fishing, and they spend the night, but they caught nothing. And I think it's interesting that we've fast-forwarded to this place and we're immediately reminded of that first story when they went out to fish, when Jesus was on the boat and he told them to push out in the deep and they caught nothing. I love the fact that he says in verse 3, that night they caught nothing. So remember, as I said, in the earlier position in Galilee, they had this same experience. So... There's no issue with the fact they went fishing, but Jesus is going to use this experience to reiterate again the reality that they can do nothing apart from him. Operating in their own strength is a recipe for failure. So remember that the fishing symbolizes evangelism. And Peter was obviously not thinking of this at the time. At the beginning of the three-year ministry, the same experience happened when Jesus was preaching from Peter's boat. And when he was done, he said, launch out into the deep and we'll catch fish. And you recall what Peter said. He goes, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Now it's hot. You don't catch fish now. But nevertheless, if that's what you're saying, we'll do it. And, of course, you know that they caught so many fish that the nets began to break, and a great lesson was taught. Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, the latter part of the verse says, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So in chapter 21, we find Peter fishing with similar results. He catches nothing until Jesus comes and directs his expedition. So the point is clear that our attempts to bring forth spiritual fruit are worthless unless Christ is at the center in giving the directions. Sometimes it's the greatest thing we can do is to just sit and wait on the Lord. And this is what Peter is going to find out. In just a few verses next week in our last message, we're going to look at Jesus recommissioning Peter. But he's already working in his heart. Here's a man who was rejoicing that Jesus had been raised from the dead, rejoicing that everything was true, but still he was the one who denied Christ. And before the book is over next week, we're going to see Jesus take Peter and deeply focus into his heart and life and ask him, do you love me? And that's what we'll talk about next week. 
But right now, because of God's great mercy and love, he is allowing them to experience again the same illustration from the beginning of the book and reiterating, you can't do it without me. I have to be at the center of everything. They were not seeking Jesus, but suddenly Jesus appears. The Lord intervenes. The disciples had once again been fishing all night, and it's, and it's uh, probably been three years since they'd done this before. And, of course, they had caught nothing, and I'm sure that as they toiled all night and went through the same experience, they were exhausted. They were tired. They just wanted their bed. And so early in the morning, as they're coming back into the shore, they see Jesus standing on the shoreline, but they don't recognize him. They were not seeking him, but Jesus was seeking them. We never seek Jesus of our own free will. Unaided by the Holy Spirit, we will never seek for him. And I'm glad it's this way. If spiritual blessing depended upon our seeking out the Lord, there would be no blessings. The reason there is a blessing is because Jesus seeks out you and I. And Jesus gives the blessing that we need. Now notice what the Lord does here. First of all, the Lord asks a question. The point of the question is to reveal again to the disciples their own need and failure of attempting things on their own. Now, have you ever noticed all through Scripture that God always asks questions? I think back in, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had, had sinned and, and taken of the fruit, God said, where are you? Later, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I told you not to? And then a little later in verse 13, he says, asked the woman, what is this you have done? Then if you recall later in the account of Cain and Abel when, when um, their offerings were given and Cain was displeased, his offer, offering was rejected by God. And God asks, why are you angry? Why is your face cast down? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So all through the Bible, God asks questions. And even what we saw a couple of weeks ago after the resurrection when he came to Mary, he said, why are you crying? What do you seek? You see, God did not ask questions because he didn't know the answer. God asked questions to get us to face the situation. And that's exactly what he does by asking questions. So in our story, Jesus asked, friends, have you caught any fish? What he really was saying was, have you caught anything on your own? Were you able to catch it with your expertise? Peter, the great fisherman, you know how to fish. Did you catch anything? And of course, he's drawing his attention back to the reality of the situation here. They had to say, sadly, no. They had to admit they'd failed. And this is what Jesus asks us when we're trying to do things on our own. Have you caught anything? Have you been successful? Have you been able to rectify that problem you're dealing with? Have you been able to leave that, lead that loved one to Christ? Have you been able to get out of the fix you're in? All these questions designed to point you and I back to him. He asked these questions so that we might recognize our hunger and our need and failures and turn to him. And this, this leads to the next step. He gives a command. 
In the case, he tells the disciples to, verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Why the right side? That's just because where he said to cast them. He could have said cast it on the left. The point is not where the work is or where it's to be done. It's whether it is being done under Christ's direction and obedience to him. Perhaps Jesus is saying to you, I have a work for you. I have a way for you to do it. I want you to stop what you're doing and listen to me and do what I'm asking you to do. Is he prompting you this morning? Is he convicting you? Are you listening to what he's doing in your heart? And then the third thing he does, the Lord sends the blessing. First, he had asked the question. Second, he gave the command. And now in response to their obedience to his command, Jesus sends such a great catch of fish, 153, that they were unable to draw it to land. The fish symbolize men and women, one for Christ. In the earlier story in Luke 5, the net was broken, but here it remains intact. For none of those whom God has called and given to Jesus will be lost. And those whom we convert may well be lost if we've done it in our own strength. But those whom God calls to Christ through us will never be lost. These are given to Jesus and are held secure by Jesus and the Father. So what happens now is their eyes begin to be opened. There's a key point in the part of the story when Jesus first appeared on shore. None of them recognized him. But when they opened, uh, but when they obeyed his command and participated in the blessing, they made an amazing discovery that this was the Lord. Imagine experiencing what they had experienced earlier. They're told to cast the net over, and it's filled to overwhelming. And it, it may have jogged their mind of what had happened in the past with their first encounter. Whatever it was, they knew it was him. And John said first, it is the Lord. Have, have you experienced this before? A situation where only God could cause the outcome? and you suddenly realize that God is working in your life? Have you ever experienced that? You're amazed. That, <laughs> amazed. You shouldn't be amazed, but you're amazed at the reality that what I'm reading here in this book is, is work, and God is actually working in my life. And what the Lord wants us to do is to make that application to every area of our life and understand He's actively working in everything. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing to realize what's happened here. That, it's a natural because we, we come to God and we feel often that he's just too far off. We feel disjointed sometimes because of the struggles. And that's natural because that's because of sin. It's a sin that separates us. But if you will obey him, he will work in your life. And you will find him as surely as the disciples did when they obeyed him by the lake of Galilee. The Lord makes this plea, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no discovery greater than this. There is no thing more wonderful to the Christian than to know that God is actively working in every area of your life. 
not just the things that seem big or, or out of your control, every step of your life. Jesus uses the word come quite often in Scripture, and he does it always in learning capacities. One of my favorite verses, and I just read part of it earlier, but Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I don't know what you've come here this morning with, but if you're struggling, I promise you there's rest. There's rest to the one who surrenders to Christ. Not because I'm telling you, Jesus said it. The Word of God says it all through the Scriptures. And there's a lot in this verse. In fact, there, there is the description of our need. There is the promise of two kinds of rest, a rest that is given, cor- uh, which corresponds to justification, and the rest that is found corresponding to justification. But the part of this verse that I think is key is the part that speaks about learning. It's the invitation to come and learn. Come and find the path that I have set for you. Come and find every need that you will ever have in the Lord. In short, there are no needs missed where God is concerned and he is bidding you to come to be filled. There is no need that you can have that God will not meet. This doesn't mean you're going to be trouble-free. You know, we live in a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies, and we have difficulties. But through all those situations, God will never leave you alone. He will come along your side. He will care for you and give you the rest if you trust Him. So as we go back to the come and dine, as the King James says, of chapter 21, verse 12, the disciples had been fishing all night and caught nothing. After a night of toiling with nothing to show for it, they're hungry. I imagine they're starved. All they want is food and a bed. But when they come to land, they find Jesus. And they see that he already has the coals hot. He already has some fish on it. Verse 13 says, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. And isn't that so much like our Lord? Even, Even in his resurrected body, He's mindful of the physical needs of these men, and he feeds them. He cares for them first there on the shore. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That means there is an endless supply. These men are learning a tremendous truth here. They've toiled all night, as usual. They've caught nothing. And before Jesus does anything, he calls them in and he feeds them. The heart of Jesus is so pure and righteous that he doesn't just care for spiritual things, as we would put it. He cares for the physical things. He knows our frailty, he knows our weakness. And he goes, come and eat. Let me feed you. Let me care for all of you. 
your heart, your soul, your body. And he provided what was needed. The men worked, toiled all night, but only Jesus could provide. And I think as a church, it's so important for you and I to realize that truth. We can have the greatest mission ministries. We can have the greatest outreach efforts. We can teach great classes and studies. But if the Spirit is not in it, it's all clanging cymbals and gongs. Only the Lord can teach and lead. And it's so clear in this one passage as Jesus begins to set the stage of what he wants them to do in spreading the gospel. Care for people in their needs. Love people. Show grace and mercy. And allow the Spirit to live through you. What's the great verse we talk about all the time? John 3.30. I must decrease. He must increase. And I think when the disciples came to shore and experienced this, they knew they would never be without him. It was wonderful that he was resurrected. It was wonderful that they, everything they taught and believed was real. They had seen it. They'd experienced it. But not only that, he is now going to lead them and feed them and care for their needs from there on, as long as they're in this world. And that is why the apostles could go through the most horrific situations singing praises to God because all they wanted was him. He was enough. Jesus cared for them in every need they had. So there's an invitation. There's an invitation to us who believe, an invitation none of us have heard yet, actually. It's found in Matthew 25, toward the end of the great Sermon on the Mount, shortly before the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus had been talking about the sheep and the goats and and the separation of the two, and he described their separation in two groups, the, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And then he continues in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 and 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you invested in me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In other words, their faith was an active faith. And you see how Jesus lays down the example right here in John chapter 21. They were hungry. He fed them. They had no fish. He supplied. And the next week, we're going to see how he loved and recommissioned Peter. And so when we look at the sheep here in Matthew 25, he goes, here's how, here's how you have come to me. By multiplying what I did for you, you've done for others. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And of course, you know, later on, he says, how did we do this? And Jesus says, because when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So as you and I minister and love people, we're duplicating what Christ did in this story. We're actually taking the lessons of Jesus Christ, internalizing them, and then spreading them out to everyone around us. 
So the real faith that separates these sheep is an active faith that believes in what Christ taught and does what he taught. And the best way to find out if you really are saved is what does your heart want to do with Christ? If you have no desire to share Christ, if you have no desire to live the life he has given, if you have no desire to walk with him, my advice is check your, check your religion. Because what the word explains and through all the experiences that we're seeing in Jesus, a genuine heart that is surrendered to Christ will live for Christ in the same model that he lived before us. That's why Philippians talks about having this mind that was in Christ Jesus. You mean to tell me I can have the same mind Christ had? But he's God. Yeah. But Paul made it clear in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What, was he, what did he do? He made himself of no reputation. He sacrificed his very life so that you and I could be saved. And the child of God who truly loves Christ will give up their life for Christ. Now, that may, mean, that may not mean you have to just change everything in your life or your job and all that. It may mean just blooming where you're planted, being actively loving and caring and worshiping and spreading the gospel. And then there are those that God grabs a hold and he changes them. Been there. When he works and says... Okay, you're going to follow me? I want you to follow me over here. Walk away from that. Come over here. But if you love him, you can't do anything else. Do you have that kind of heart this morning that all you want to do is please the Lord? Your life may be full of difficulties and struggles right now, and I get that. But in the midst of those struggles, do you hear the word of God saying, come to me, learn of me, I will give you rest. There's no other way, folks. There's no other way. That Matthew chapter 25 is a very sobering passage because the ones who don't, they're with the goats. Those who follow, follow because their heart is changed and they can do no other. I must decrease, he must increase. He calls me to walk over here, I walk over here. He calls me to give up this, I give it up. All that matters is bring glory to my Savior. And those who have known him and taken his free gift of salvation in the Lord, he says, come take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. Will you hear him say that to you on that day? There is a kingdom laid up for us who believe. This is why Paul was so confident in whatever life threw at him. 2 Timothy 1.12, Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Matthew 6, 19 says, He has laid up treasures for us where moth and rust do not destroy. Everything in this earth, earth will be destroyed. But what's done for Christ will be laid up. It's like that little catchphrase, only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. 
I think the key message from these 11 verses as Jesus has laid this example down and we have seen how he has walked and met every single need, the thing you and I really need to ask ourselves is, is that my life? Is that really what's going on in my daily life? Because if it's not, you have to ask the question, Lord, what do you want of me? Where is my heart that it might be surrendered to you? And sometimes you have to do it not knowing which direction to go and trust that he'll lead you, which he will. Or you can wind up like me, being fully content where life is and find out, nope, it's not where you're going. The greatest joy in life is knowing when you wake up in the morning, you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. And that may be staying right where you are. Or it may mean radical changes. But the joy that is there, as we talk about Psalm 37.4 all the time, is that if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And what that means is by surrendering complete to him, he changes your heart to want what he wants. And that's the greatest success in life can ever have. And it's not contingent on having a good life or a bad life. It's not contingent on trouble-free or lots of troubles. It's contingent on your heart sold out to Christ so he can carry you through. And he is the only one who can do that. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you don't really understand all that I've been talking about, please don't leave without speaking to one of us and finding out how you can be sure of salvation. That's all that matters in life is Jesus Christ and him alive in my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this passage, but Lord, I pray for many who are are struggling, and sometimes in our struggles, it's so difficult to see you. We're prone to want to give up. We're prone to want to just throw in the towel, as Thomas did, just saying, no, I'm not going to believe it. He's gone. There's no way until he actually saw him. But he saw him because of Jesus' mercy who came to him and said, Thomas, look, look at the nail prints. And Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God. There may be some here this morning that need to see Jesus. They need to have the verses pop off the page and hear your voice, Lord. I pray that you would make yourself so clear to them through your word that they could have that constant and glorifying, victorious faith, that they too might serve you and live for you and sell their whole lives out to you, that they might enjoy the blessed of learning of you, coming to you, and finding that sweet rest that you've promised. I pray that you'll do the work in the hearts of all of us and we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen.